When we come to the heart, there are a couple of reasons why we have to talk about this. And the first is because there's no possible way for you to walk through this world, through this current culture, through what's going on in our world today, without coming out on the other end beaten and bruised with battle scars all over you, okay? Unless <laughs> you know how not to isolate yourself but insulate yourself in this world. You have to know how to insulate yourself. We are in this world even though we're not of this world. We're in it. And we have to know how like Shadrach, Mishkan, and Abednego to walk through a fire and not even smell like smoke, not be touched by it, not be burnt by it, but that God be glorified as we walk through this life. Amen? The two greatest driving forces of human nature are pain and pleasure. Pain and pleasure. Avoiding pain, gaining pleasure. These are the two things people strive for to achieve and to maintain throughout their lives. That's why they get up in the morning, they go to work because they got to go and do what they have to do in order to create and achieve and maintain a life of pleasure, comfort, convenience. See, they plan their lives around these two issues. That's why people work hard towards more comfort and more convenience because that's what promises you a life of pleasure, an enjoyable life. But that's why people are fearful of breaking the law because of the possible painful consequences they will experience if they're caught breaking the law. So we're always guarding ourselves from pain while at the same time reaching and pursuing towards pleasure. These are the two things that drive human nature in every way. But today, I would like us to look deeper past the psychology of it all. I'd like to look deeper into what allows us to experience either pleasure or displeasure. What makes a person so enjoy certain things and so disdain other things? What is it that causes the animal called the human nature to have those appetites? I want to submit to you that the state of a person's heart determines what he finds to be pleasant and what he finds to be abhorrent. Based on your heart, your heart tells you what you love, what you hate, what pleases you and what you find abhorrent. What you find desirable and what you find detestable. Your heart determines that for you. The person whose heart is dark and hardened, darkened by evil and hardened by sin, will find pleasure in doing things that are evil. That's why certain dogs love biting. <laughs> That's their nature, right? And so the person whose heart is darkened with evil and hardened by sin, that person actually finds pleasure in doing evil and doing sin. The person whose heart is filled, on the contrary, with a love, with a life and the light of God, will find pleasure in doing things that are righteous and that are godly. You see, the state of your heart determines what brings you joy. I'm sorry for doing this to you, but could you please tell your neighbor, the state of your heart determines what brings you joy. You see, there are certain things that will bring one person joy, but that same thing another person despises. And it's because their hearts are different. They have different hearts. The person whose heart is darkened, darkened, darkened by evil and hardened by sin will be tormented by practicing or participating in a Bible study, for instance. And like, they repulsed by worship. Like, oh, not this song again. Oh, my gosh. Oh, jeez. The person whose heart is hardened towards God, just they actually <laughs> repelled by doctrine and, and theology and and, and scriptures and truth and righteousness. And, and they, they, they rejoice when they see righteousness prevail in culture, in government, in a person's life, in a family, in a church. They rejoice when they see that. Another person goes like, bigot! <laughs> because the heart, right? The heart. The one person celebrates it. The other person mourns over it and falls into depression and so forth. So what brings one person great pleasure is the same thing that brings another person great torment. <laughs> the, the difference 
is the state of their heart. This is the game changer for you in life. It's absolutely game changer. And um, the more I looked into scriptures about it, it's, it's undeniable. And why we don't look at this every day of our lives um, is a travesty. In Luke chapter 6, verse 45, the Bible says this. The good man out of the good treasure. Can everybody say treasure? The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. In other words, good things flow from that person's heart. And the evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth what is evil. In other words, evil, like a river, flows from that person's heart. Evil deeds, evil actions, evil thoughts, evil statements, evil words flows from that person's heart that is filled with evil. And then it says this, conclusion, for the mouth for the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. So the heart is filled with good, filled with good, filled with good. And the heart is like a spring from that place of good. And the same thing is true for evil. The person whose heart is filled with evil and filled with anger and filled with resentment and filled with hatred and, 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 and just filled with everything non-scriptural, his mouth just, it just pours out of his mouth. Slander and... And, 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 and hatred and so forth. So here Jesus, in this verse of Luke chapter 6, 40, 45, He says and clarifies that your heart is a, de, a depos, depository. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a vault, a bank, something that holds a container that holds all the good that gets put into it or holds all the evil that gets put into it. And whatever comes out of your mouth, good or evil, first, of course, comes from the heart that comes out of that depository. Now here's our text for today. So if you have a Bible or in your wherever in your mind, just in your ears, you can hear this out. Proverbs 4 verse 23 is our text. It says this, watch over your heart. Keep a watch over your heart. Another translation says, not watch over your heart, but keep your heart like you keep a garden. You take care of it. You prune it. You plant what you want to see grow in it. You take out what you don't want in there. You uproot what you don't want in there. Keep your heart. Another one, another translation says guard your heart. Like you stand in front of your heart. There's your heart and you stand in front of it. And, and maybe like with a baseball bat. And here comes resentment. And <laughs> you take out resentment. You're not coming in here. And, and here you see... You see um, some skewed worldview and you just, nope, you're not coming in here. <laughs> you know, you guard it like a guard. Because th when it gets in there, folks, when it gets in there, we'll see what happens. Okay? That's why forgiveness is, forgiveness is that bat. You're just like, all right, okay, here comes, here comes unforgiveness. Nope, I'm going to forgive. And I stay free. My heart stays free. <clears throat> so, it says, watch over your heart, and then it tells us how to watch over it with all diligence. Watch over your heart with all diligence. Another translation says, above all things, guard your heart with all diligence. Above all things, your highest priority is guard this heart with absolute diligence. Don't be more diligent at the, at, on the job than what you are with your heart. Don't be more diligent with anything than what you are with your heart. Let me tell you why. Because if I'm more diligent in, in, in like, not with my heart, but just in actions with my marriage, well, then that's not going to work because eventually my heart's going to fill with, I'm, I'm going to be a hypocrite. I'm going to be filled with things my actions don't line up with, right? And eventually my actions are going to change according to what my, what's filled, what my heart's filled with. All right, so if he says, watch over your heart, we have to ask, well, how? He says, with all diligence. And then we have to ask the question, why watch over our heart? With all diligence. Why? He gives us the answer. He says, for from it, that depository, that reservoir, that holding tank called the heart that holds all evil or all good, whatever you choose to put in there. He says, from it flows the springs of life. Everything about your life comes out of there. How you respond how you react, what you say, the decisions, everything, your will, your mind, your emotions, your affections, everything is rooted and grounded in there. It's like a faucet. It's connected to your heart and 
what comes out of that hose is what was deposited into the heart. So if our heart is the fountain from which all of life is determined, and we are told to watch over it, so we have to ask this question, where is our heart? <laughs> do I use some kind of ointment to fix my heart? What do I, you know, what do I do in order to guard, keep, and protect, and watch over my heart? Well, where is the heart? Thomas Watson wrote, the heart is taken diversely in scriptures. We see in, he says in Proverbs 10, 8, we see that it refers to the mind. In 1 John 3, 20, it refers to the conscience. In Psalm 119, verse 36, it refers to the will and the affections. The will and the affections. Now those are outlets from this reservoir. Your mind springs from what's going on in your heart. The thoughts that you have grew out of the state of your heart. Your conscience is rooted and grounded in the heart. Actually, A.W. Pink answers it more accurately. He says the heart is the seat, the seat of, his, of, of your thoughts. In other words, your thoughts rest upon what's called the heart. Your thoughts bounce off of into the direction and as high as your heart allows it to. Your heart is that soil that your thoughts grow from. So he says the heart is the seat, the ground of your thoughts, the seat and the ground of your affections. Your affections spring from what your heart is filled with. That's why a person cannot have pure affection towards their spouse if their heart is filled with resentment, unforgiveness, and anger. Your heart determines the thoughts that grow from it and the affections that come from it. Then he says the heart is the seat of your thoughts, your affections, your will, your will. That's why some people's will are broken. I really... I really want to do that, but I don't always really want to do that. I also want to do this. They're so double-minded. Their will is broken. I'm never going to say yes to that again. I'm never going to say yes to that. It's like, okay, yes, I will. <laughs> you know, their will is completely broken. They can't even will the Scriptures. They are in bondage. Their will is in bondage. They can only will what darkness tells them to will. That's why the Bible says, for man hated light and they loved darkness. They loved darkness. Because their heart was darkened. They couldn't help but love the darkness. They can't help but love sin. And it takes a work of grace for that will to be freed from that sin, from that bondage of sin, where it can now will righteousness. So, here A.W. Pink answers, in full, the heart is the seat of your thoughts, your affections, your conscience, and your will. So let's circle back to our text verse, okay, which is Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, where it says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows and springs all of life. So here the Bible declares, because the heart is the birthplace of thoughts and ideas, because the heart is the birthplace of confidence and courage, because the heart is the birthplace of conscience and conviction, because the heart is the birthplace of your drive in life and your desire in life, because the heart is the birthplace of your affections and your emotions, because it is the birthplace of all of these that make up a person's life, the heart, above all else, needs to be kept, gardened, and protected. Because if you don't, it's going to get soiled, it's going to get dirtied up, it's going to get muddied, it's going to grow hardened, it's going to become dull, you're going to lose sight, just like Samson did, because he loved what wasn't right with his heart, he lost his sight. Because of this, above all else, the Bible says you have to keep your heart guarded and protected. 
And that is why we are to watch and keep it with all diligence. All right, so what does it mean to watch, to keep, and to guard your heart? What does it mean? Like, okay, so we grew up in moralistic Christianity uh, for most part. When I grew up in the Pentecostal church, it was moralism. Went through the, um, you know, word faith movement, went through the prosperity thing, went through all of the above, you know, and, and uh, all of it hung on morality in a big way. And morality defined what a person was. Of course, justification by faith and faith alone is where you land eventually when you study scriptures constantly and constantly. Justification by faith and faith alone and as a result of your justification, and as a result of this new heart that you have, you now have a new life. It's a result of who you have become. Because think about this. The Bible says God will do a new thing. What's that new thing? He will take out the heart of stone, the heart that has died, that cannot respond. A rock cannot reply to you, right? He will take out that heart of stone, and He'll put in a heart of flesh. Now listen, when... The Word of God says, now God is going to do a new thing. You will hear Caleb and the above always, every beginning of the year, oh, 2020 is going to be great. God's going to do a new thing. Every time somebody plants a church, God's going to do a new thing. No, he was talking about the new thing is a new heart instead of an old dead stony heart. That's what he was going to do. So 2020, yes. 2021, yes. We should believe that God's going to do a new thing. What's that new thing? We're going to see the sheep gathered. We're going to see God do this new thing where He's going to gather everybody according to His will. Pull out this stony heart that cannot respond to Him, that loves darkness only, bound by sin, cannot, is a slave to sin, cannot do other but sin. He's going to rip out those stony hearts and He's going to put in a heart of flesh. And when they have a heart of flesh, they're going to have different desires. They're going to have different convictions. They're going to have different loves. They're going to suddenly detest what they used to love and love what they used to detest. They are going to be a changed person because of the grace of God. So what does it mean, therefore, when you and I as Christians have to guard our hearts? Because that's the Bible talks to us who already have this new heart and already love light and hate darkness, but we find ourselves drifting, every one of us, me included, when we come to the place, we go like, what am I? Why am I so angry? Why am I so resentful? Why? It's just, it's just coming up and up and up in your heart. And after a while, you go like, why am I? I feel hateful, actually, at times. I feel like angry. And you don't even really know why always. And, and you, have to, you have to test and you have to watch and you have to guard and you have to keep your heart and you have to go in there and start pulling things out, right? Like you do a garden. And you start planting what you want to see grow. And so we have to keep that heart. But the question is, now that we found out where the heart is located, it's the seat upon where your thoughts come from and your ideas come from and your confidence, your courage, your conscience, your conviction, your drive and your desires, your affections and your loves and your emotion. And if this is true, then how do we guard it? Because it seems like an important thing to do. A.W. Pink gives us really, really clear direction, and I want to quote him. He says, we are to keep the imagination from vanity. How do you guard your heart? You keep the imagination from vanity. Stop the vain imaginations. Because that's what your imagination tends to do. It tends to become vain. It thinks more of self than of Christ. And instead of denying self, it elevates itself. So he says, we are to keep the imagination from vanity. Like, do away with humanism already, especially in the church. Man is not good. Man is evil. That's why you needed Christ. If man was good, if the more you see the goodness in man, the less you see the need for Christ. So stop trivializing Jesus by elevating man. Man is a fallen human being. He loves to sin. So we are to keep the imagination from vanity. He says, the understanding from error. 
Why? Because that's what happens to the understanding. It usually gets corrupted by error. It sits in front of the TV all day long, filling itself with error after error, lie after lie. So we have to keep our imagination from vanity, our understanding from error. We have to keep the will from perverseness, where we want the perverseness, we will it. We have to keep the conscience clear from guilt and the affections from being in, inordinate. Lusts. The mind from being employed on worthless and vile subjects. In other words, keep your mind from engaging in worthless things and vile things. It's actually kind of cool to see Hollywood is pretty much shut down, hasn't it? <laughs> and then he says, this is the work to which God has called us. So let me read all of that to you. We are to keep the imagination from vanity, the understanding from error, the will from perverseness, the conscience clear of guilt, the affections keep it from being inordinate, and keep the mind from being employed on worthless and vile subjects. This is how we guard and keep our hearts. Folks, I know that we are saved by grace, not by works, but I tell you what, your heart, is, your heart remains soft by your discipline and self-discipline. Isn't that the last fruit of the Spirit, self-discipline? It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's not a, it's not a work, it's a fruit. See that? Self-discipline is the last of the nine gifts of the Spirit, uh, excuse me, fruits of the Spirit. So the Bible makes life a defining issue. Excuse me. The Bible makes uh, um, um, the heart the defining issue in your and my life. And I want to read you some verses that proves it. In Matthew 5, 8, it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Whenever I read that verse, it always made sense to me when I had, <clears throat> you know, a broken heart in high school. <laughs> you know, you have a broken heart in high school. Somebody left you, hurt you, ignored you. And you run to the verse because I was used to, and I used to like, the Lord is near to me because my heart's broken right now. But he's not talking about a guy who cries over a girlfriend that left him. He's not talking about that broken heart. He's talking about the one who didn't lose a girlfriend. He's talking about the one who lost innocence before God. The one who lost innocence before God. The one who mourns over the fact that he has sinned against God. No matter what he's lost in life, the greatest thing he mourns over is the fact that he has sinned against God. And the Bible says, God is near to the one with a broken heart. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. In other words, that means God is close to the repentant heart. God is close to that person. Proverbs 17, 22, the Bible says, A joyful heart is, a, is good medicine. A joyful heart is good medicine. A lot of healthy things come to your mind and to your bones and to your body if your heart is filled with joy. That reservoir of good of righteousness, of Scripture, when your heart is filled with all of what is good, your body responds in health. It says, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. Matthew 15, verse 18 through 20 says, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. In other words, when you listen to somebody's mouth, it's really what their heart's already filled with. And those defile the man. In other words, what comes out of the heart through the mouth, it defiles the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts. That's where your thoughts come from. If they're evil, which we all have, you go like, I just thought that. Oh my gosh. I can't believe that thought just came. Where did it come from? My heart. Or you have good, you have, you have good will towards somebody you don't even know possibly or that wasn't good towards you. Where did that come from? The ability to love your enemy. That comes out of the, the reservoir of good in the good man's heart. It's a treasure, the Bible says. So we have to fill that treasure with good. That's why it's so important to get into scriptures at all times. 
So it says, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts. Murders come from that heart. Adulteries actually come from that heart. Fornication, theft, false witnesses, slanders. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands, that doesn't defile a man, Jesus says. Go ahead. Use those dirty fingers. You're not going to get defiled. But when evil things come from your heart, you are defiled. In James 4 verse 8, it says, Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Change, uh, cleanse your hands. Stop sinning, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Purify your heart, you double-minded. A double-minded man is a result of an impure heart. He has a second agenda. And therefore, he's always double-minded about everything he chooses to do. He has a second agenda. That's why he can never be committed and faithful to one thing. The Bible makes uh, life the result of the heart. In Psalm 112, verse 7, it says, He will not fear evil tidings. In other words, this guy will not fear bad news. He goes to the doctor. He's not in fear of bad news. He turns on the news. The media, he's not fear of bad news. It doesn't mean he doesn't hear it. It just means he's not fearful of it coming his way. There is no anxiety in this person regarding what he's about to hear. He trusts God. It says it. He will not fear evil tidings. His heart is steadfast. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. So anxiety and fear is gone because of the state of a person's heart. What's his state? He's steadfastly trusting God. Can we all say sovereign? sovereign. You see, God is sovereign. That means He's always God, and He's God everywhere. And nobody, including me, can override His will. He's sovereign. His will is going to take place. Everybody thinks they're getting their way today in culture. They think they're putting... You know, you know, like when stimulus packet come, people go like, no, uh, we're not going to vote for it until you do this little favor, and we're going to add our extra little billion over there. and extra little. People think they're getting their way. Let me tell you, relax. No, God is having His way. <laughs> he is sovereign. Nobody's going to manipulate. Nobody's writing history outside of God. Nobody. God is writing history. Now, we have to stand for what is right, not for who is right. We have to stand for what is right. The one who puts forward what you believe in. That's what you support. That's what you stand by. Your, the policy there. That's what you agree with, right? I'm amazed. So, the Bible says, He will not fear evil tidings. His heart is steadfast trusting in the Lord. In other words, if a person's heart is steadfastly trusting the Lord, then he will not suffer anxiety. Anxiety comes out of what's been deposited into the reservoir of your core being, your heart, the very heart of you. The Bible talks about in 1 Peter the person of the heart. The person of the heart. It is you. The very person of you is called heart. And everything, your emotions, your desire, your will, your convictions, everything flows from the real you, the heart, okay? The state of the heart is an absolute game changer in life because it will determine what you love, what you hate, what you desire, what you despise, what you give yourself to, and what you protect yourself from. All of that flows from what's in the heart. So what are the causes of a hardened heart? What causes this heart that we have to protect to under our, under our supervision, it grows harder and harder and harder? What causes it to grow harder? Because if we can find out what causes it to grow harder, we can fight against that in our own lives. So the first is doubt. There are a few things. I'm going to share two with you. And here are the two top things. Doubt. Doubting 
God's ability, God's willingness, God's timing. And since I use the word timing, I think it will be valuable to explain this to somebody here today. Did you know that if you are going to trust God, it means this, that you are going to trust Him with the outcome of something. You're going to trust Him with, by doing what He told you to do. Jump! All right, I will jump. Why? Because I trust. <laughs> so in other words, to trust God means, number one, I'm going to obey what he, the direction He gives me. That's trusting God. It's not just saying, I trust God because i got to feel better right now. No, you trust God by actually submitting yourself to His directive. Number two, you trust God in the outcome of that path He sent you into. I, God, you told me to take this path. I'm taking this path. I'm obeying. Number two, I'm going to trust you with wherever this takes me. This is your will. <laughs> I'm, I'm giving it to you. The outcome is yours, God. Because what people oftentimes do is they go like, I'll trust you, but I'm going to do it my way. And I want to arrive at my destination. Well, that's not trusting. Trusting is saying, I will give myself to your directive and I will be okay with your outcome. Thirdly, you ready? Trusting God means... I also trust Him with the timing of all of it. The person who does not trust God is the one that says, my way, my outcome, and my time, my time, timetable. I know what I want when I want it. That's not trusting God. Trusting God is when you say, your way, God. Whatever you choose the outcome to be, I'm going to be okay with it. You're sovereign. Plus, whenever you choose to make that happen, now I can rest. It's all yours. Where now, God? Left here? Good, I'll go left. Because the outcome of this is in your hands. Does it make sense? Those three things are very important when you say, I trust God. But what happens here is people doubt God. People doubt God. Why? Uh, doubt causes a person to have a hardened heart, but is a result of a hardened heart. So the more you doubt, the harder your heart gets. And the harder your heart gets, the more you doubt. And the more you doubt, the harder your heart gets. And the harder your heart gets, the more you doubt. And Jesus actually uh, uh, it geniusely explains this to in a, in a story here in Mark 8 verse 17. Please follow Mark 8, 17, and here's a story. After their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Okay, so here's, here's the backdrop. Jesus had performed multiple, multiple miracles, okay? One of the miracles that he had just performed was there were thousands and thousands of people hungry. And what did he do? He he said, what do you have? They said, there's a little boy with just a few fish and a few loaves of bread, right? He says, bring it to me. And he starts multiplying it and multiplying it and multiplying it and multiplying it and multiplying. And everybody got bread. And everybody got fish. Now, the Bible says 4,000. But in those days when they took, they did not actually count the wives and the children. So they estimate that there must have been something like 15,000 people in that field that Jesus was feeding in that day. They were all getting hungry and Jesus was feeding them. Note. Jesus was feeding those who followed him. And as he was feeding them, at the end, there was some left over. And Jesus says to the disciples, what? Go and pick up all the leftovers, right? And so that's important to understand because of what's about to happen here. This is after the event. They started getting hungry again in a circle with Jesus standing in their midst. They go like, oh, what are we going to do? We're hungry. <laughs> you see what's going on, right? man, we're in trouble. We're hungry. What are we going to do? And they're having this conversation with one another while Jesus, the provider, is standing in their midst. So aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you not, do you not see 
Or do you still not see or understand? Do you still not see or understand? What's wrong with you? Now he goes there and says, Are your hearts hardened? Is this what's going on here? You cannot see the truth about me, the provider, and you don't even understand that here I am in the midst of you. What's going on? Is your hearts hard? Do you, uh, are your hearts hard? Okay, now he's going to explain and articulate the symptoms of a hardened heart. He says, do your eyes, uh, do, you, do you have eyes but fail to see? And ears but fail to hear? Don't you remember? Oh my goodness, it wasn't even long ago. Don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of pieces of bread did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did I pick up? Seven, they said. He said to them, do you still not understand? So here we have Jesus clearly and definitely spelling out the characteristics of a hardened heart. A hardened heart. And here are the conditions of a hardened heart, the symptoms. It has an inability to see the truth. The hardened heart doesn't see truth. Jesus is standing in front of them, but they don't see the truth. They see the argument. He says, the hardened heart does not understand the truth. It understands cynicism. It doesn't understand truth. He says, the hardened heart doesn't hear the truth. In other words, the hardened heart doesn't hear truth. It hears cynical voices only. It says, the hardened heart does not remember the truth. This is big. It doesn't remember the truth. The hardened heart doesn't remember God's past goodness that they saw when He fed the thousands. It only remembers their past pain and their past failures. And so the hardened heart draws from past pains and draws from past failures and now goes like, oh, what are we going to do? The soft heart goes, oh, didn't we just feed thousands? We're only 12. <laughs> they draw from the past miracles that God has performed in their lives. They draw from what God has done in their lives. They draw from God's past goodness shown towards them. They draw from what they have learned about God in the past, and they make their future decisions, and they live, and they trust God from that point onward. So these disciples saw with their own eyes how Jesus multiplied the fish and multiplied the bread, but they trivialized that past event to the point where it was actually forgotten. They forgot how powerful, able, and willing Jesus was to miraculously feed them. Now, do you realize that? I mean, the Jewish people as a group, they have been persecuted, I mean, for as long as we know. Think about all the way back to Pharaoh, how they were treated in slavery, and it? These people, wherever you scatter them, they tend to rise to the top, don't they? There's a book called The Jewish Phenomena, and in that book it outlines, it's not a Christian book, it's a secular book, but it outlines how uh, this people's group, as small as they are, have been as effective as they have been. I mean, if you read uh, the Nobel Peace Prizes and the amount of breakthroughs in science and medicine and... Like most of it is actually, it's a crazy thing. And then you look at who owns almost just about everything. Now, I'm not saying there are holy people by no stretch of the imagination. But it's a, it's, a, it's a crazy thing how they have survived, no matter how small they are, and no matter that they're landlocked from all, from every side, they're surrounded by enemies and have been, and, and they just make it. But there's something that is interesting when we look through the traditions of the Jewish people, God has trained them that they always have to gather around 
regularly with meals. And the meal tells a story. What's a story about? Of God's past goodness. And if he was that good to us, when you open the Red Sea. I mean, how many of you have ever attended one of our Seder services here? Once a year, we used to have Seder services. That's a whole meal where the whole meal is telling the story of God's miraculous goodness that he has shown to their people in the past. And kids are like, they can tell the story. It's memorable because they know what they ate. <laughs> uh, they know the stories of God's goodness. And every year, my son started this. We started um, celebrating Hanukkah, and we're coming up to Hanukkah. And we're not Jewish. I mean, you know, we're not Jewish. We, we as Orthodox, Christian, Reform, Protestant as they come. But, you know, we love participating in these things. So my son likes to put the candles up, and I think he started it because he likes lighting stuff on fire. But it turns into a tradition for us. And what is Hanukkah? Hanukkah, again, is, it's, it's a telling of a story. And it's a telling of God's past goodness. And when we can fill our hearts with how good God is and has been to us, we can draw from those past good experiences. And today, when we're faced with some crisis, we can, God, we can say God has always been good. And we can now trust that He will remain good to us because He doesn't change. But if all we do is we look to our pasts and we find our failures and our pains and we draw from that and we go like, uh-oh, here comes another crisis. I'm going to be down and out again. I'm going to be set back for another 65 years. I, know this, I just know it's going to happen. I just expect the worst. Never going to have food again. What are we going to do now? You know, and so the disciples were drawing from past pains, past failures, past hardships, and Jesus, the provider, is standing in their midst. And he's saying, what's your problem? <laughs> you, you have eyes, but you can't see the truth. You can only see the argument. You can only see the problem. You have ears, but you can't even hear anything but cynicism. You don't even understand the truth. You can't grasp it. And he says, and you don't remember it. Your memory, your capacity for truth, your capacity for hope, all stems from the state of your heart. The state of your heart. This causes them to doubt that he could feed them again. And he said, what are you, hard-hearted? When you open up the Bible, is it too cold in here? When you open up the Bible and you go like, I don't know, I don't know, you know, I don't know. If, if it's hard for you to trust, it's not because of God's standards, because of God's requirements and the direction He's called you. It's not because of that. It's because of the heart that can't trust it. It's not, it's not God's word. It's my heart that cannot trust because it's too hard. So how do I know I'm in danger of a hardened heart? How do I know I'm in danger of a hardened heart? How do I know I'm in danger of doubting God's goodness? like the disciples did. Well, let me explain it this way. Too often, you and I, we lose sight of what God has blessed us with. I mean, how many of you can say, gosh, looking, looking, you know, through the history of my life, I can just tell you if it wasn't for God, <laughs> I don't know where I would have been. You know, uh, if it wasn't for God, how could I have been saved? If it wasn't for God, I would have given myself to so many things to prop me up and to hold me up and to give me some moment of pleasure every now and then I can afford to do it. You know, like, I would have gotten myself into so much bondage if it wasn't for the goodness of God. So too often we forget about that. We lose sight of that, the past goodness of God. And we lose sight and forget what He has brought us out of if we understand sin and fallen man. We lose sight of that. And when we trivialize His past provisions... We will struggle to trust Him for our current needs. When we trivialize Him for His past provisions, then what will happen, we will struggle and we will struggle to trust Him for our current needs. So we have allowed our hearts to harden toward God in doubt when we struggle to trust God for our current needs and with our futures because we have forgotten how He has provided for us. Number two, 
Sin hardens our heart. Sin does. First, doubt does. But secondly, our heart becomes hardened towards God through sin. Nothing hardens a person's heart quicker than unrepentant sin. Like, I know this is not right, but I keep doing it. If we do not confess our sins, they will have a cumulative desensitizing effect on our conscience. And this is what the Bible talks about in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 through 2. I'll read it to you. He says, uh, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith. The Spirit says explicitly that in latter times some will fall away from the faith. Watch this. Paying attention, paying attention. Oh, I wish you can learn this. Paying attention. Can everybody say paying attention? Paying attention, paying attention to deceitful spirit. How do deceitful spirits speak? Giving you doctrines of demons. Deceit, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Okay, so what's a doctrine? It's a scriptural understanding of the author's original intent. <laughs> you know, that's a doctrine. A doctrine is a scriptural principle that harmonizes from cover to cover. That's a doctrine. You can uphold it. The Bible stands, stands for it. The Bible calls it truth. It is God's standard, articulated and upheld by scriptures alone, not by subjective truth, my truth, her truth, his truth, your truth. No, no, no. God's truth, okay? That's a doctrine. But here he introduces us to something else called doctrines of demons. Doctrines of demons. So you mean to say that the demons are opening up scriptures and teaching people stuff from the Bible? Yeah, way. <laughs> yeah. All the way from the beginning, from Jesus, all the way through the disciples, the early church fathers, the first century church, the formation of the church, all the way through until the deformation of the church, everybody constantly says, watch out for demons of doc uh, doctrines of demons. False teachings. Watch out for it. It's one of the greatest um, warnings that you have in scriptures. So, check this out. He says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. Why? Because they're paying attention to these doctrines taught by demons. Of course, people are teaching it, but demons are opening their eyes to certain deceptive deceptions. And then they're teaching those deceptions. And people are paying attention to it. And because they're paying attention to it, they fall away from the faith. I'll read it to you again. But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits, doctrines of demons. By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their... Let me read it again. By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their conscience as with a branding iron. Okay, so now... We go, okay, how does, how is a person's conscience seared? Paying attention to what? Doctors of demons. <laughs> you, know, there's, uh, you know, this is true, and it's happened a few times. A friend, like, hey, when are you, when are you going to not, like, uh, live with your girlfriend anymore. You know, like, get married, all right? Get married. Why? Because the Bible says it's wrong. What? I don't know it's wrong. Like, who's your favorite preacher? Oh, this guy. I listen to him every day. <laughs> I'm like, well, no wonder. <laughs> no wonder. I mean, he has the biggest church here, but this doesn't mean a thing. It just doesn't mean a thing. And that's happened multiple times, over and over again. But what happens is then people get to a place where their consciences are seared. It says it right there, as with a branding iron. Now, when I grew up on a farm in South Africa, my dad farmed cattle also. And what farmers used to do is they used to take their initials. My dad's initials were DJ. Uh, but even though, anyway, so, so farmers would take their initials, and they'll get steel that shapes their initials. They'll put it in fire. And then they'll <clears throat> put it on the behind of that cow, right? And it'll burn into the flesh. It actually smells a little bit like, uh, like barbecue for a moment there. And then 
that, that flesh right there becomes numb because the nerve endings have been singed, right? And the same thing the Bible here gives us is that of the conscience. When the conscience is constantly violated, constantly violated, and it is by listening, paying attention to doctrines of demons, and the conscience constantly violated, constantly, eventually that conscience will become so dead. That person who, who was raised in a church where sin was never mentioned, repentance is never preached, that person there, eventually their conscience is completely seared. They're like, no, I'm fine. Well, no, God forgives, God loves, God's grace. God, it's always just that. It's never what God asks for. It's always what I know God has given it, therefore I know it's mine. And, and the problem is in that day, many will say, Lord, Lord. Many will say, Lord, Lord. And he'll say, I actually don't know you. And they are going to be shocked. They are going to be shocked. And so we see how a seared conscience arrives. Paying attention. I'll read it to you again because I don't want to have to come back here. 1 Timothy 4.1 But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith paying attention to doctrines of demons and so sear their own consciences. Stop listening to people who can't use the word sin. Just stop it. Just If somebody cannot call people to repentance, turn them off. That's not, that's not for you. A seared conscience is a hardened heart. Remember, the conscience flows from the heart, and a seared conscience is a hardened heart, one who no longer feels. Uh, doesn't feel guilt. Guilt's wrong, you know. Well, aren't psychopaths those who cannot feel guilt? Sociopaths? Yeah, <laughs> they can't feel guilt. How would you like a church filled with spiritual sociopaths? They live as they want. They feel no guilt. Why? Because... Romans 8.1. There's therefore no condemnation in Christ. That's the one verse they know. <laughs> you know. <clears throat> a seared conscience is a hardened heart. So we have to answer this question. Well, how do I know I'm in danger of having a seared conscience? How do I know if my conscience is seared? We have to ask that question and we have to answer it for ourselves. If this is important to us, which I know it is. Well, listen to this. 2 Timothy 4 verse 2. It says this. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Preach what? The word. The word. Psychology, no. The word, <laughs> right? <laughs> Preach the word in season and out of season. And then it says how? It says reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. It says reprove. The word reproves means reprimand. That's all it means. Reprimand, okay? So preach the word in this way, in all seasons, reprove, reprimand, rebuke, we all know that word, and exhort, encourage, with all diligence, with great patience and instruction. Do that. So here's my point. How do I know my conscience has been seared and no longer has feeling? It's when I open the word of God and the Word of God no longer exhorts me. It's like, ah, oh, boring, you know. That no longer affects this. This is not encouraged and built up by what that is saying. This is numb to that. My heart, my conscience has been seared. My heart is hardened. But remember, it goes on. It says, Rebuke. <laughs> so, here's a big one. Rebuke and reprimand. I'll put it into one. Rebuke, reprove, and exhort. Rebuke, reprimand, and exhort. When the Word of God comes to me, and I can no longer be rebuked by it, I am no longer reprimanded by it. Nope. I already know what I believe. Not interested. Thank you. But no, thank you. I'm good. 1974, I felt the Holy Ghost. I'm good. I got a goosebump on the left arm, took a picture of it. Proof. I'm filled. 
Don't talk to me about nothing. All I want to hear from you, Joel, is encourage me one more time. Just encourage me one more time. Please. That's why I come. But the Bible says that we have to hear the Word of God. We have to be reproved by it, rebuked by it, exhorted by it. And I'm saying today that when the Word of God can no longer exhort you, conscience is seared. When the Word of God no longer rebukes you, I will not be rebuked by that God. Okay, well then go. Conscience is seared. I will not be reprimanded. I will not be reproved. Conscience is seared. In other words, somebody who have no ears, they cannot hear because all they're looking for is affirmation over what they already believe. Let me just tell you, the Word of God is inexhaustible. You cannot reach the bottom. We will get to heaven one day and we will learn about truths, about scriptures we've never seen before and it will overwhelm us. It'll be like we just discovered the greatest treasure ever. The Word of God <coughs> is bottomless. It's, you cannot find the bottom. So what I'm saying regarding that is I have to daily go, okay, I get it, Lord. Sorry, I've, I've been wrong all along. I get it now. I have been rebuked by it. I am being reproved by it. Okay, I'll start doing that differently. Okay, I have to live differently when it comes to my family. I have to live differently when it comes to my church family. I have to change when it comes to the workplace. I have to change when it comes to things because the Word of God is constantly, constantly sharpening me, sharpening my axe so I can become more effective causing me to know a higher truth and live at that higher truth. It rebukes me, it exhorts me, it reproves me, it reprimands me. And if I cannot constantly change by what I see in scriptures, and if I can't constantly learn a higher truth than what I've known in the past 30 years, then my conscience has been seared. My heart has become hard. And that is through pride. So how do I deal with this hardened heart that I know that I have? I've gone through a little season here with my heart going like, oh, Jacques, you need to take care of this one. You need to take care of this one. And when I have to, when I, when I have to look at, you know, why is my heart hardening? It's just really all of the above. <laughs> it's pride, you know. It's sin. It's, you know, it's doubting God. It's everything. You go, okay, well, deal with your heart. It's my responsibility. When he said, guard your heart, he wasn't telling me to guard your heart. He was telling you to guard your heart. Right? So how do we deal with a hardened heart? We first have to admit that we have one. And we have, that we have allowed our hearts to be hardened by sin, by doubt, by pride. And by acknowledging this problem of a hardened heart, we can then follow what David did. In this case of Psalm 139, I'm going to close with two verses. Psalm 139, verse 23 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Search me, God. How, how many times do we even pray that? God, search me. No, I'm searching everybody else, seeing what's wrong with them. <laughs> I'm on the TV. I'm trying to find out what's wrong with that person again. I hate him. <laughs> and we're searching everybody. No, 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 David was different. That's why the Bible says, David speaking, he say, uh, God speaking, he says, David is a man after my own heart. Why? Because David was the one who said, God, search me, O God, and know my heart. Then he says, try me and know my anxious thoughts. Try me, test me, and know my anxious thoughts. My thoughts are anxious because there's something wrong with my heart. He says, try me. And see if there be any un, if there be any hurtful way in me. This is David praying, and he says, "See if there is any hurtful way in me." So people read that and they go like, "Well, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have ways that hurt anybody." No, he's talking about way me damaging my relationship with God. Is there any way in me that damages my communion with you, my my com my conversation with you? my intimacy with you, What's, what, what about me in my heart damages that? Because when God speaks to you, He doesn't speak to your left toe. He speaks to your heart. He doesn't speak to your elbow. He speaks to your heart. That's the real you. And is there a breaking communication because of me? He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and test me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me then in the everlasting way. Lead me in the everlasting way. Lead me in the everlasting way. 
Before I read 1 John 1 verse 9, I want to encourage you, church family, if, if you feel like your emotions are out of hand, they've just, they just sometimes come loose. You're like, I like to call it, an, I don't know if it's a saying here in America, but in South Africa, you're an emotional basket case. You know, sometimes you just fall apart emotionally. You don't know why you keep on desiring what you shouldn't desire. You don't know why you don't have an appetite for the things you know you're supposed to have an appetite for. You're just always lukewarm about everything. And, uh, you know, you, you're just like, God, I just hope I'll make it one day, you know. <laughs> I'm coming to church like, eh, I'm hoping I'm going to make it. If that's you, realize that it's a heart issue. I mean, if your drive is broken, it's a heart issue. Like if I, if I lose my, my drive for truth and my love for righteousness, when I lose that, it's a heart issue. So we have to learn to deal with our hearts just like David did. Search me, O God. Let's pray that prayer sincerely. 1 John 1 verse 9, I'll close with this. It says, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, if we want to be cleansed from hardened hearts, seared consciences, if we want to regain feeling in our hearts, if we want to regain a soft heart, a tender heart before God, then what we need to do is we need to come before Him and, and confess our sins and say, God, I have filled this reservoir with everything but what pleases you. I filled this reservoir with so many evils of the day, but I need my heart softened. Do you know, every time you meet a person with a very soft heart, you're drawn to that person. Why? Because that person's not going to harm you, are they? Because they're humble. You're drawn to that person. Why? Because you can trust them. Why can you trust them? Because that's what you do with a, hum with a humble heart. You trust a person who's not all about themselves. But they're humble. They're emptied of self. So you can trust them. You feel safe around them. You're drawn to them. But isn't that what God said about David, the one who prayed this prayer? He's a man after my own heart. I'm like that. And David, I love that about you. Let's pray.